Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're going to talk with Jill Bolte-Taylor, and I'm going to give her a proper introduction here in just a second. Uh, but if you would like to join us on the program, please call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can uh, join the discussion on our website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can also follow us at Noon Edition on Twitter. So um, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor has been here with us before and uh, you may – some of you may know her story and if you don't, uh, please listen carefully because you're in for a a wild and woolly hour of discussion. Um, Dr. Jill is a Harvard-trained and published neuroanatomist who experienced a severe hemorrhage in the left hemisphere of her brain in 1996. In the afternoon of this rare form of a stroke, she could not walk, talk, read, write or recall any of her life. It took eight years for Dr. Jill to completely recover from all of, all of her functions and thinking ability. Uh, she's written a, a book about her experience. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's Personal Journey, and was chosen as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World from 2008. In addition, she was the premier guest on Oprah's Soul Series webcast, and her interview with Oprah and Dr. Oz on The Oprah Winfrey Show was aired on Tuesday, October 21st, 2008. And I must say that she was a guest on our show way before Oprah. That's right. (laughs) And the most important thing is I live right here in Bloomington. That's right. Right. She's a Bloomington person. Jill, thanks for being here. Thank you. I appreciate it, Bob. really like having you back. And as a follow-up to today's show, if you want more information, you can find the Soul Series um, on Oprah's website as well as you can go to our archive online and listen to our first interview with Jill. And also there's been a um, WFIU profile done Mm -hmm. on you and so that's also available online. So – People can find out more. Yes. Jill right. Bolte Taylor all the time. Thank all you. Jo- all, all the time. time. That's all the what time. we like. Or you can go uh, JillTaylor.com. JillTaylor.com. Yeah. All right. All right. DrJillTaylor.com, I guess. Jill's here with us today. We ran into each other at the bakehouse and, oh. and we're just chatting. And um, she, I said, Well, what are you working on now? And oh my gosh. There. <laughs> <laughs> There's never a dull moment. No, a lot. Well, yeah. And yeah. Well, let's let's start by just sort of asking. You know, since we last mm-hmm. talked, and it's been a year and a half or yeah. two years. I don't know how long it's been, but you've had a lot of sort of fame, I guess, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, that's mm-hmm. come your way. How's that changed your life? Uh, it's it's been very exciting. Uh, it's interesting for me to be walking down the streets of Paris and have people come up behind me and say, "You're Jill Bolte Taylor." <laughs> oh my gosh! You know, it is. Yeah. It's an oh my gosh moment. And um, so for me, it's been very interesting because I'm I'm the same, and the world has changed around me in the way the world looks at me. So it's been a fascinating experience, but it's been really wonderful because people come up and they hug me, mm-hmm. and um, you know the message has been really one of hope, one of love, one of deep inner peace, one of of really taking responsibility for who and what we are mm-hmm. inside of this skin and what can we learn about our brains in order to find more peace so that we project more peace into the world. So it, it's really been an, a, a wild, wild and woolly ride, uh-huh. which is, as you said, and but it's been wonderful for me. Uh-huh. Well, you have changed a lot of people's lives. You've changed my, changed my life I, and the way I think about my brain and who I am and how that um, uh, makes me who I am. I guess my brain yeah. chemistry, how it makes me who I am. It's just fascinating stuff. Well, before we uh, – you know, some some people may not have heard our first yeah. interview or, or know all the background. Could you sort of give a little yeah. brief – yeah. Well, I, I grew up to study the brain because I have a brother diagnosed with schizophrenia and he's only 18 months older than I am. So he was my constant companion as a child. Mm-hmm. And I recognized when I was a little girl that he was very different from me in the way he he 
perceived experiences the, just differently from the way I did. And, um, of course, as children, you don't know that somebody's not normal. You know, is that people are different. And eventually my brother was diagnosed with the brain disorder schizophrenia. And my entire focus then really became interested in the brain and how does it create our perception of reality. And so I grew up to uh, study the brain as a neuroanatomist. And uh, I was at Harvard Medical School teaching and performing research when I had a major hemorrhage in the left half of my brain. And in the course of four hours, I watched my mind completely deteriorate. And that afternoon, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. And I, 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 my mother describes me as, as a breathing body in the bed. Uh, I describe myself as an infant in a woman's body. And so uh, for the next eight years, uh, two and a half weeks after the hemorrhage, I, I had major surgery. And then uh, for the next eight years, I went through the process of recovery and completely recovered everything uh, and was back to teaching at the medical school. Um, and um, I'm not back in the lab doing research, but I'm working on different types of research projects now. And everybody said, you know, why did you recover? What did you do? And it became clear to me that I had to write a book uh, because that was that's how we communicate in our society. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote my stroke of insight, Brain Scientist Personal Journey, and uh, I self-published it. And so it was out in the world for a year and a half. And then last year, probably before I – after I I was here with you, I was invited to give a presentation at a conference called TED. And TED stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. And I was invited to to tell them my life story in 18 minutes or less. And so I put together this presentation and they they build themselves as a thousand of the world's top movers and shakers. And I thought, okay, you know, I'll present this this to them. um, And and if it works, it works. I influence a thousand important people and then it helps change their worlds and the ripple effect will will be beneficial. Well, it it went over very well at TED and then they they listed this video on their website and within the first 24 hours, 250,000 people saw this video. It It was put into over 80 different websites and so within weeks, millions of people all over the world saw this video and my whole life exploded with change. Uh, publishers all over the the U.S. Uh, saw it. They went. And they found out I had a book that was already done that was self-published. Um, Oprah found out about it. Uh, so 2008 was a, an absolutely enormous uh, promotion of this story into the world, and I literally just hung on for the ride. Um, and, and things have calmed enough now this year that I can actually put my mind back to things that I find of value and I find important. But the book's going out in 26 different languages all over the world, and 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 it's I'm getting to see the influence that the story is having on medical organizations in other countries that are smaller than the than the United States. Because like in France, all the doctors know this information now because the book's there. I was interviewed extensively for all of the doctor magazines. Mm-hmm. And then the people know the story. So it's getting to work its magic in that kind of a population. So for me, it's very, very satisfying. The paperback's coming out in May. And so now that's being adopted by lots of medical schools and medical professional schools, including OT, PT, speech therapy schools all over the U.S. So it's it's just wonderful for me to be able to have such a positive influence on, on how we treat people with neurological rehabilitation and what they need in order to, to recover. I, I want to just add my endorsement for the book. Thank you. And also for the uh, – that TED video – is it is eighteen minutes well spent? If you you know you can find it, it's on YouTube. You, know, you can find it easily on online, and it I I, I was struck by I mean your emotion as yeah. you did that. It was it's a very um, touching and inspiring uh, eighteen minutes. So I recommend everybody see it. Thank you. I also watched the Oprah show, and I have to mm-hmm. tell you that when you brought out your bucket of brains, I thought Oprah was going to faint. <laughs> Did she say anything to you about that? <laughs> no, she squirmed a little, you know, but it's like, you know, grin and bear it. And yeah. I thought she did remarkably well. Yeah, yeah as I just hand her that uh-huh. brain. Yeah, yeah, right. Because you yeah. use that in your presentations. Yeah. You bring out 
brains and yeah. show people a little bit. And, you yeah. Know. Well, and and for the TV show, I got to you bring a variety of different brains from stroke, uh, hemorrhagic stroke, or uh, in the brainstem region or in the cerebral cortex, and and look at those and show people what it actually looks like. And this is why you have some type of cognitive deficit or function. It's because those cells don't function anymore because of this big old blood clot or this big old problem. So, yeah, and I had a great time. You know, let me bring my bucket of brains and I'm very happy. But Dr. Oz on, on the this, this show, it, it was so nice to be with him. He's so easy to communicate with. And, uh, and of course, he loves brains, so that makes me very happy. Yes. All yeah. right. Our phone number today, uh, as always, 855-0811, 877-285-9348. You can find us uh, on the website, wfiu.org org slash noon edition and you can follow us on twitter at noon edition we had someone uh deb uh who already has a question for us she came in over the website and it says uh what is the mechanism that produces such overwhelming fatigue for those with Mm. brain injury and how did you regain your cognitive and physical stamina after your stroke well, I would I would first address the fatigue issue as you have to consider that in order for us to have any normal perception of reality, there is a cascade of cells that have to each perform their function and then pass the information to the next group of cells, to the next group of cells, to the next group of cells, just for us to be able to process visual information or auditory information or any kind of, of sensory stimulation. So, so all these different cells have to perform their function and they're all interdependent on one another. And if you have a brain trauma and some of the cells in that cascade are no longer functioning, then it's like a telephone wire that has been cut and I can't get that message mm-hmm. across that gap now. And so I can't have that function. And and so I'm trying and I'm trying to do something that I cannot do and I'm, I get exhausted. The cells themselves get exhausted and they, we become fatigued. So I think it's a matter of the fatigue issue, and this is one of the things that that my mother um, uh, intuitively understood, that she had to let me sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep until I was ready and crisp and alert again before she could teach me anything new. And if she didn't allow me to do that, then I was burnt out and I wasn't learning anything and I was irritable. So we, we really honored the healing power of sleep as number one. Whenever anybody asked me, what did we do in order to help me recover, it was we honored the healing power of sleep. So when you are fatigued, that's your body saying we're not processing, things aren't working well, go to sleep and allow yourself to really get that sleep if you can. Wow. Yeah. And then, um, so how did you regain your cognitive and physical stamina after your stroke? Do you just attribute it all to the sleep? I attribute it to um, um, uh, the strategy of let me sleep until I'm alert and then work me while I'm alert. But as soon as I reach fatigue again, allow me to pull away and go back to sleep. So it's this fine balance between challenging the system and allowing the system to recover. Now, when you say um, work me, do you mean um, physical as well as as mental? Um, you know, you had to relearn right. how to read. Right. You know, walk. I right. assume everything. Right. So, everything. Both. Right. Yeah. Because from my perspective, everything takes energy, mm-hmm. and and normal living takes enormous amounts of of energy. And I had hardly any. So when I was awake, we had to be very focused in what is the next next natural thing for me to be doing. If my mother would have said to me early on, "Sit up." Well, sit up is a big thing. You know, I needed to first be able to just roll my body, roll my body in the bed, use my energy to reacquaint myself with that movement, and then allow me to sleep until I wake up again. And eventually, I'm going to start rolling with enthusiasm, and I'm going to become a master of the roll. And then I would naturally rock myself up, rock myself. So here I am. I'm rocking and I'm rolling on my own agenda, but that's the agenda. It's not sitting up Mm -hmm. because if the, the goal is to sit up and, that, and, and I just try and I fail, then my life is filled with failure. So we had to break everything down into smaller steps that I could master and, what is, and, and then I would become a master of it with enthusiasm and then make the next natural pro- progression. So it was really breaking things down into things that I could do, focusing on my ability, not my mm-hmm. disability, having me do what I was capable of doing.
doing until I became strong at that and then could take that to the next natural level. But I needed people on the outside of me to show me what is next because Mm -hmm. I didn't have that perception. Now, what is your mother's background? Because it sounds like she was so instrumental in your healing. And as you mentioned, she knew that you needed to sleep somewhat intuitively. She just knew that that was something that was good for you. But it sounds like she went beyond that. So how did she come to this kind of knowledge? Was it all intuitive? Well, she was uh, a mathematics professor at Indiana State her whole life. So she's a teacher. Mm -hmm. And so she knows how to kind of set up an agenda and a program and a protocol. But at the same time, it was real clear that if I wasn't learning, I needed to go to sleep. And um, and she has always been a believer that sleep is time for the brain to organize and, and learn and gain what it has already brought in. So it's kind of downtime for the brain to do the filing and the processing. And because she had that perspective and she could recognize that I needed that time in order to to learn essentially what she had shown me, then and and. When I woke up, I was capable of going back, and I had had integrated some, if not all, of that, and was ready to move forward. So, so I, she intuitively knew, as a mother, first of all, to love me, to nurture me first, mm-hmm. and then if I had any energy left over, to give me something to do and to challenge my systems immediately and uh, interspersed with appropriate sleep. This is a total sidebar, but were you yeah. were you able to regain your childhood memories, for example? Uh, I know that I know things today that I have not been retaught. But there's, there's, you know, the the thing about what you don't know is you don't know you don't know yeah, it. And right, so right. it's not saying, hey, you don't remember me. It's like, I'm sorry, it's gone. So, um, <laughs> but I, I, so I have regained some memories, but I'm sure that there are, are pieces that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your, your mother, we thought your mother was going to be with us today. But yes. She, but you have I've already had an hour with uh, the BBC before we came yeah. on the air. They, right. they did an interview with her here. So. Yes. 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 No, she's did, uh, she's a gem. Did they ask her any good questions? Um, well, you know, whenever they ask her to go back and relive that moment, um, she just always moves straight into the emotion of what it was like for her to mm-hmm. see me because she thought that I – she had been told on the first day that – that because um, she was in Indiana and I was in Boston. And they said, you know, she's stable. Uh, she's had a stroke. So I need for you to prepare your, your estate and your affairs so that you can come for an extension. Time, and um, and she said okay, and um, based on the faith that I was stable. Well, to her, stable meant I was sitting up, I was capable of a little form of communication, uh, and that was not what she found. Um, and she was shocked. And um, so for her, she describes me as just a breathing body in the bed. And what else does a mother do? You know, she picks up the sheet and crawls in bed and wraps her arms around me and starts rocking me to bring. Comfort, not just to me, but to both of us, of reestablishing this connection, and and I'm sure it was devastating for her because I did not know what a mother was, much less who my mother was, and you know that whole mother daughter bonding, it was gone for me. So we were starting really from scratch, and and we had to create a new relationship uh, in order for for us to to find our way as a, as a new team as we're approaching what how are we going to rehabilitate me and and is that my priority? Is that what am I willing to show up for it? I think your mom is going to need to write her own book. Well, a lot of people have have really asked her for that so much so as giving her that um, um, the. Computer program, so just speak it, <laughs> you know, and, and let it write itself. And and I think you're right. I think that that she has a story that is so valuable from her perspective mm-hmm. about how to look at me and how to how to treat me and and how to celebrate uh, because that's one of the things that we did. There was never a moment of misery. The the, the she was so happy I was alive. Mm-hmm. I was so happy I was alive. Um, the the phrase stroke victim. We're you know we're just not allowed to use that. I was a stroke survivor. I had already done something really wonderful. I had survived this. And then it was that matter of, okay, well, how much of, how many of my abilities and skills would I be able to, to get back? But it was fascinating because this morning she was saying, you know, I, I had really no hope of her growing up to be what she has become again. We just wanted her to become independent again. I wanted her to be able to live alone and feed herself and be able to shop. And, and we did not have big high expectation, but she 
set me up so perfectly uh, that, that it, it worked out beautifully. Amazing. Yeah. All right. Our phone number is 855-0811, 877-285-9348. And you can join us on the website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and follow us on Twitter. At Noon Edition. And I also want to mention that we have links to the TED video and the book uh, on the Noon Edition website now. They went ahead and took care of that for us during the show. And uh, so we can go ahead and send people right there after the show. They can access that immediately. Perfect. Okay, great. Um, I remember from previous conversations that we've had and hearing you speak um, that you have uh, – how would you define normal? Let me ask you that. I mean, because we, we always talk, you know, yeah. people are just so used to talking about, well, right. the normal brain does this right. and this and that. Right. And I think you have a little different approach to that. Well, I, I think that, that normal, you know, in order for any two of us to communicate with one another, we have to share an, a certain amount of common reality. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, a lot of us make the, the kind of perception that you're just like me because you look like me, you talk like me, you have arms like me, you, you must think like me. Well, all you have to do is look at politics, and we know that we have very diverse ways of being in the world. So, so for me, I think I think normal is is how 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 out, how how much in that bell curve do you fit for the overall ability of what we are, as opposed to um, skills that take us beyond that bell curve. And yet, at the same time, I see the people who are at the edges of the bell curve as differently abled. They have a different way of perceiving, and because they don't perceive the way the normal population perceives doesn't mean that they they perceive less than. It just means they perceive differently. And so they're going to have different skills than the normal brain is going to have. Our brains are very loud. The brain chatter in the left hemisphere, the way it organizes information is, is there for most of us. For some individuals, they don't have that brain chatter. And so they've shifted away from that form of communication. It's not, they're not all obsessed with the details in the external world, and they're more more in perhaps what you'd call the autistic spectrum because they're they're differently able. They have a, a different way of perceiving, and uh, yet our normal population wants to look at these individuals and normalize them. So so how can we do that? But yet at the same time, not we're not doing that with an appreciation for what gifts do they have that. When we normalize them, we now will inhibit those those functions and shift them. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I remember from our last discussion, you said, however your brain is, is your normal. Yeah. And I thought that was... Well, Brilliant in its simplicity. Right. Well, it has – right. It is. Uh, you know, there is no no human behavior that we do that is not uh, – d- would could not be defined as normal for us to do it. If we are capable of thinking it or performing it – we can do it. It's normal for us to do it. But our societal norm sets a definition of, well, these behaviors are not acceptable. It's not okay to kill. It's not okay to hurt. It's not okay to do whatever it is that is outside of the defined definition. But for the brain, the two hemispheres are are two very different entities, the two hemispheres, in the way they process. And between the two of them, they give us this single, seamless perception of the world. But there's really two of them, and they process information in totally different ways. And and what I gained from my experience with stroke and becoming in this space of not being able to communicate with the world or relate to the world was in losing the left hemisphere and its brain chatter and the details as it defines me as an individual, I am. I am Jill Bolte-Taylor, blah, blah, blah. When I lost that perception, I shifted into a, 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 gr- a different kind of awareness where I was no longer distracted by the details of the external world. And I felt this incredible peace, this oneness with all that is. I no longer defined the boundaries of my body. Where do I begin and where I ended? Because those cells were, were traumatized. And yet I was still a whole human being. And from my perspective, even though I couldn't walk or talk or read or write and everybody looking at me is going, oh, my God, poor Jill, I felt that I was perfect and whole and beautiful just the way I was because I was. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's given me a shift in perspective of looking at other people and wondering what gifts have they gained because they now are differently abled. Yeah. We're going to take a, a break and then we have a phone call we're going to get to first after the break. We have several email. So we have a lot of people that want to talk to you. So uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. Our guest is Jill Bolte-Taylor. We'll be right back. 
You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 7.45. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guest today, Jill Bolte-Taylor. Jill has a very uh, interesting, fascinating um, bio. I I will just tell you that – just listen to the program. She's one of the most fascinating people you're going to ever hear. Now, is there a category for favorite neuroanatomist on the Herald Times Reader Choice Awards? I don't know, but I know who'd get my vote. Because so. I know those are going on right now. So you can vote. If, if Maybe you could be a write-in as the favorite neuroanatomist. All right. Well, we've had several more emails that have come in. Do you want to get to your call first? Yeah, let's get to the call okay. first. And it's Stephanie. Thanks for thanks for being patient, Stephanie. Oh, no. It's, this is easy to be patient listening to this uh, Believe me. So, and I apologize because I joined late. So, if if uh, Dr. Bolte Taylor's already talked about this, you can just move right on. But I remember from uh, the first time I heard her on WFIU, she talked about sort of the physiology of anger and how she um, began to understand when she felt unpleasant uh, physically what anger was, and then the neuroanatomist in her eventually understood that. There's really just a few seconds uh, in which we sort of don't control our anger, and after that, we start making the choice. Um, it did. If you haven't talked about this yet today, I just wonder if she could review that. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. Um, yeah, when I when I talk about anger circuitry, you know, I think about everything inside of the brain as being a group of cells performing a certain function. And so I can think a thought, and that's my thought circuitry, and I can feel emotions, and that's emotional circuitry. It's actually cells in my brain that are creating the experience of emotion, the perception of emotion, and then that can result in a physiological circuit that gets run that dumps something into my bloodstream, and then I have a physiological response to that emotion. So when I look at the brain, everything is just cells and cells communicating with other cells in these circuits. And so anger really is it's just a group of cells. And that group of cells can be triggered in order to run its circuit. So I can think a thought that that will make me angry. And the more I think the thought, the more angry I feel my emotional circuitry of anger is getting stimulated. It's dumping noradrenaline into my bloodstream. I'm having a physiological response. Response. My chest is getting tight. I'm not having enough oxygen. My the furrow in my brow. I'm clamping my jaw. I'm having this experience of anger. Um, and and what I really gained in awareness was that it takes less than 90 seconds for me to think the thought that stimulates the anger circuit to run and have its physiological response, and for that whatever it dumps into me to flush completely through me and out of me takes less than 90 seconds. So I call it the 90-second rule. And I encourage people that when you feel yourself becoming angry, stop and look at your watch. Because automatically, as soon as you you observe it and you choose to observe it instead of engage with it, then it the circuitry no longer has the power over you and you don't have to run that circuit anymore. So it's, it's really a matter of, of observing instead of engaging with the circuitry. But you have to have the willingness first to think about what are the thoughts you're thinking that are now stimulating your anger circuit to run. That's so great. Send All her right. to the Middle East, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Stephanie. 855 811 877 285 9348. You can join us on the website, wfiu.org slash noon edition, and follow us on Twitter at noon edition. 
All right, here's an email that came in from Una. She wants to know, uh, she says, my brother also has schizophrenia. Could you explain a bit of what is going on in the brain of a schizophrenic? His particular diagnosis is schizoaffective disorder with depression. When the brain, in order to be diagnosed with schizophrenia, all you have to do is have two symptoms. First, you have to experience hallucination. Hallucination is going to be you are either hearing things that other people are not perceiving or you are seeing things that other people are not seeing. So uh, you have to have some type of hallucination and you also have, a, have to have a delusional thinking system, which means I am perceiving all the information coming in about my life and setting it up in a framework that other people cannot relate to. So I may have the perception that I am Jesus Christ, and all the information coming into my life supports the fact that I am Jesus Christ, and for the last 20 years, I have been Jesus Christ, and my world and my perception of reality is just as real as yours. It's just that you don't you you can't share mine, uh, and the normal population would not have that. So in order to be diagnosed with schizophrenia, you have to have hallucination and delusion. Now, that leaves the door wide open for who, what, what is it like to process individual as a schizophrenic, as a person who is diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia, because your brother may be totally different from my brother, but they each experience hallucination and delusion, which is why all the same medication may not work for my brother that's going to work for your brother. And um, when you consider the information processing, different cells in different areas of the brain communicate with different chemicals and in different quantities of those chemicals in the brains of individuals who do not perceive as what we would call normal. So you've asked me a really big question, um, but that's, that's kind of the best I can simplify it. Okay. Thank you. All right. We have a phone call. It's uh, Steve. Steve? Hello. Um, I, too, am fascinated by this. I don't know if you have read the article by Atul Gawande in the recent New Yorker on solitary confinement and psychotic uh, manifestations, um, which seems to me to have enormous implications, especially for older people who are socially cut off. But it was about social deprivation mm -hmm. and its deleterious effects on the mind. And I wonder if you have any insights or um, comments on that. Um, I, I actually don't have insight into it, but I will read the article, so I appreciate that. Sure. Thanks, right. Steve. Thanks for the call. All right, and we have one more call. Uh, I believe it's Carol. Carol? Yes, hello. Hi. Hello. Hi, go right ahead. Oh, okay, hi. Um, you talked about the difference uh, between left brain and right brain perception, and that's very interesting to me because I know if you draw or do artwork, when you go into your right brain phase, it's very easy to do it if you're in the left brain phase. The left brain gets in the way. Is there a way that people, some exercises you can do to kind of <clears throat> help you shift into that right brain mode and perceive in that, that way when, when you want to? I think there are a lot of different tools that a lot of different people use. Uh, meditation is notorious all over the world, different types of meditation in order to to help you quiet that language center, quiet the brain chatter, quiet the the, the critical voice that says, um, you know, don't even bother to try to pick up that because you're just not, it's not going to be good anyway because you don't know what you're doing. Um, so it, it silences the, the critical voice as well as just the, the distraction away and into the detail, uh, prayer. Uh, many people will use prayer. Uh, many people will use walks in nature. Uh, the point is to get out of the details and to get into the bigger picture. Uh, so for me, my favorite thing to do is to just look out a window and look at the breeze in the trees and to essentially let my energy shift into being with the energy of the breeze in the trees. And just by, sh by that kind of conscious choice, I'm now thinking about that. I'm, I'm hooking into that feeling of what it would feel like to be that breeze or to feel that on my face and I'm shifting away from, from my thoughts of the past or my thoughts of the future and bringing my consciousness to the present moment. You know, the beauty of art is the willingness to try and in order to do art or music or however you define art, you have to be willing to just make a mess. Chaos is the first step in the process of, of creativity. And mm -hmm. so, so you have to be willing to make a mess and to get messy 
see, and, and there's not a right and there's not a wrong and there's not a good and there's not a bad. There's just a go and be it and do it and savor it. And the more often you do that, the better you get at getting into the, the frame of mind of being there. And, and it adds some meaning, a different type of meaning to your world. Very good. Thank you. All right. Thanks. We should say that Jill is an artist and she is a musician. So, mm-hmm. Carol, I would also recommend here locally, um, and this is available throughout the country, but I know Bloomington Hospital offers it locally. There's a, a program called Heart Math, and it, it teaches you how to do just exactly hmm. um, what you described, Jill, as far as really getting centered and, and letting go of, of the immediate and uh, kind of pulling back uh, and getting – I guess, again, centered, and uh, I took the program, great program, so I would recommend it. Good. All right. So anyway, here we have more emails, so much to get to here. Um, This is from Jessica. She says she's a psych major, and she's – uh, let's see. Her, she's finding that her understanding of the mind gives her an interesting insight on her own functioning. How do you think your understanding of the brain affected your experience? I think that um, it it led me through the entire process of recovery. I think that for me, my fascination of the brain is just at the core of my being. And in order to to try to capitalize on what does what do the cells need? I'm a cellular uh, person um, for as a neuroanatomist. Uh, so I shifted back into the cells and what do the cells need in order to recover, in order to become well enough to regain mm-hmm. function. So so for me, I, I believe I had a roadmap that other people who have the same kind of trauma don't have. They don't have that three-dimensional understanding of the body and the brain mm-hmm. and the biology of it and how biology works and how to then capitalize on the abilities of certain cells in order to help other cells recover. So so I, I, I give uh, a, a lot of, of, uh, of commend, commendation to the beauty of the brain and, mm-hmm. and how it helped guide me back. A couple of follow-ups from Deb um, kind of along the same lines. Um, she also asks, what are tried and true uh, as well as new medications, supplements, and treatments, both those with, bra- uh, those with brain injury should be talking with their doctors about? Do you have any recommendations along those lines? You know, I think every brain is different. And uh, if the person is experiencing a form of depression, then anti- antidepressants should be considered. Um, if they're not, and a lot of individuals are placed on antidepressants simply because they have experienced a trauma, uh, I don't think that that's appropriate because if you take an antidepressant and you're not depressed, you will become depressed. Hmm. Uh, so, so you know, I, th- I think every individual is different and that that, that needs to be dealt with with a medical professional directly. Oh, interesting. One more quick follow-up from Deb is uh, how can those who have experienced a stroke avoid experiencing continued mini-strokes? Well, it's not normal to have many strokes. It's not normal to have any kind of stroke. So if you're having any kind of mini strokes, then I'm going to encourage you to go to a cardiologist. Uh, stroke is generally a cardiac problem, and oftentimes um, the, you will find that there's a, a small hole in the heart or there is a certain place in the heart that is creating clots, and then the clots are being shifted into the brain. So um, uh, it's, it is not normal to have stroke, period. And if you are, then there is a cardiovascular reason. Clots are coming from somewhere and and you need to go and and discover where. Mm -hmm. All right. We have a couple topics we definitely want to get to. We know we got more callers that are are trying to work their way in. Um, We wanted to talk about the movie. The movie. The movie is coming up. Yeah. 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 There's um, – we we haven't signed any contracts, but uh, we're we're getting closer and closer and closer. I've been in communication with Imagine Entertainment uh, for over a year. Uh, They're very interested in the story. Um, Jody Fox Foster is very interested in playing Jill Bolte Taylor, so um, uh, I've had communication with her, and uh, she's delightful. So, um, uh, in a, in a, they have identified what they believe the perfect screenwriter to be, and so that was the next step. And I just spoke with them yesterday, and um, uh, they have a director in mind. I, I can't name his name, but he's very famous. <laughs> and um, uh, so, um, so, and and then in about two weeks, imagine we'll take. The, uh, the the story to Universal Studios, who has first right of refusal with them. And so they'll say yay or nay, probably at that point. And if they say yay, then we will start the process. And if they say nay, then it will get shopped to other studios. Uh, but they're gung-ho enthusiastic. So it's very exciting. Well, that is exciting. exciting. Now, are you meeting with Jodie Foster? Does she yeah. want to... 
um, try to be yeah. as much like you as possible for the yeah. role. Yeah, she she threatened to move into my life and and uh, <laughs> live with me for a while. So uh, Jody Foster might be coming to Bloomington. How exciting would that be? That would be very and, cool. And uh, so I'll have to take her to the farmers market. Yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so so um, but she does. She she wants to get inside of my head. She wants to see how I live. She wants to meet my friends. She wants to gain a sense of who am I, and um, so that she can feel that, mm-hmm. take on that that character. Uh, so so it, it's really we're in a very exciting process, and, and and so we'll see. We'll see what the future brings. Wow, that is really I think neat. the two of you on Noon Edition would be great. Wouldn't that I be awesome? Too. Okay, yeah. I'll, I, I think we'll try to work that out. Come right. on back. Yeah. We'll get a lot of positive okay. feedback from the booth <laughs> on that, too. That Excellent. sounds exciting. Excellent. Now, when you and I ran into each other at the Bakehouse, yeah. you opened a topic that <laughs> was just fascinating. You talked about the economy and what's going on with our economy right right now and its relationship to the brain, which now subsequent to that, I've actually started reading some things. It's fascinating, but I'd love to have your thoughts on that. Well, the way I I look at at what's going on in the economy is that that we have have skewed ourselves away from being a a balanced biological species in relationship to the planet. And so when you look at the two hemispheres, when you look at any biological system, the, the cell, the life of the cell is all set up with all these negative feedback loops with a a negative feedback being the cell needs something, it goes on hunt, it gets what it needs, and then it's satisfied. And then it goes on to get something else. So so it's, it's satisfied along the way. And then there are positive feedback loops where um, it wants something and it gets it and then it wants more of it. And this is kind of like addiction. And so it wants more of it and then it, it gets, gets it and it wants more of it and wants more of it and wants more of it. And so the way I look at it is, is it, we, there are lessons that we can learn about how to be a biologically based species in relationship to this planet for sustainability. And that is to look at what works at the level of the cell and and we have shifted towards more of a of a left hemisphere negative feedback or or positive feedback mm-hmm. where where I wanted money I work for money I get money I want more money I want more money and so I I do what I'm doing I work harder I get more money and then I want more money instead of I have the money I can kick back I can relax I can do you, you biological systems are based on a push and then a pause you have to have the pause. You can't just push, 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 drive, 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 drive. You have to have the pause. You have to have the relaxation. And when you look at the human brain, it's very specifically designed with those two hemispheres. The left hemisphere is designed to push, 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 do, 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 out in the world, obtain, obtain, detail, 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 go, 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 go. But the right hemisphere is the space of deep inner peace, relaxation, refuel the system, and and the two hemispheres, I believe, are inside of each of us so that we can create this balance between the two. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'm just a, a real real advocate for the balanced brain model where we look at, at the value of both of the hemispheres and we recognize that they are both of equal value and that we have this incredible right hemisphere that is the essence of what we are in the clarity of our intention. Who am I in the world and what gifts do I have to bring into the world in order to make my contribution to humanity and make the world a better place. And then the left hemisphere takes over and it gives me all these skills and then Mm -hmm. I can focus and direct myself into the world. I can do things. I can change things. I can create things, but then I have to go back to the balance. So it's the push and pull kind of mode, the the looking at at the what does the cell need in order to sustain itself. And it seems like the balance or the importance, I I would say the equal importance of those two hemispheres and almost those two concepts is something that's not really validated so much right. in our culture. Exactly. So exactly. you think that needs to be a, a cultural shift? Well, I think that, that, that the culture, I think that, that as when you look at us as a society, we have been rewarding our children for left hemisphere skills. And so, so they get the awards for doing the left hemisphere, do, 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 do. And now because of what has happened to our economy, then the, the re- instant reward isn't there anymore for the left hemisphere doing. And we have to shift ourselves back into the value of what is 
really important. And and most people now are recognizing they're having more time in their relationships. It's about their families. It's about their relationships with themselves, the relationship with nature, the relationships with their neighbors, the relationship with the community, the relationship with recycling, the relationship with, with how do we manifest now in order for all of us to prosper, in order for us to really sustain ourselves. So so the economy situation is really shifting us, forcing us to look at, at more of a green system. And, and, and to me, it's just kind of naturally happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but at the same time, our right hemisphere is programmed for change. And I think that is so important. When you look at the, the, the economical um, perspectives that are so negative, what that's not taking into account is the fact that we all have a right hemisphere. We are designed biologically for change. We are designed to create new ways of doing it. And of course, what has been is not going to be. No question the change is being forced on us. But at the same time, we are designed for that choice. We are designed to be adaptable and flexible. And we are. And that is happening. All right. We have a phone call. And uh, it's tall. No? No phone call? Oh, we lost a phone call. But we have an email. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Betty commented on our website, uh, please talk a bit about the spiritual consequences of your stroke. In the book, you describe the bliss you experienced when the left brain messages were shut off. And you say a bit about recapturing that after you recovered. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, thank you, Betty, for reading the book. Um, it, it was as the left hemisphere shut down in language. Essentially, imagine what your brain would be like if it wasn't talking to you all the time. You know, you wake up in the morning and you look at yourself while you're brushing your, te- your teeth and you know your name. You know, you're talking to yourself. Well, if that were quiet, if that were silent, then you wouldn't be distracted by those things. You would shift into the experience of the present moment. And so as I lost language and the brain chatter, I shifted into the present moment. And in the present moment, it's a perfect moment. There's, it's a moment and it's a big moment. It's not like it's just a second and, or a minute and you got to go. It's a, you got to get another one. It's a moment and you're having an experience and you're, you're paying attention to this, what's coming in through your sensory systems and how rich and delicious the flavors are and the sounds are and the blending of sounds and the noise and, and however you define it, but you're paying attention to it. You're seeing the world in, in a different way that is is not in a hurry and not distracted by words taking you to details of the past or of the future somewhere else. So for me, it was really a beautiful shift into what I describe as a state of, of nirvana, a space of, of euphoria, because nirvana essentially defined means um, the, the light burned out or, or, or the stimulation is finished. And for me, my one way of perceiving the world was gone, and yet I had this whole experience of being in bliss. And, and because the cells in my brain that defined the boundaries of my body were traumatized, I, I, I didn't know where I began and where I I ended and I had the perception that I was as big as the universe. And so so for me, it was really a, a beautiful experience, a beautiful way of being. And, and I agreed to come back in my own mind as long as I didn't have to sacrifice being able to tap into that experience and being able to go there at any time that I wanted to. And so have you accomplished that? Yeah. Yeah. I can, again, for, for me, it's I look out the window and I become the energy in the trees. I become the wind on my face. I just, I, it's a feeling. It's a willingness to, to negate all that, that chatter and just set it aside. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying go away forever. I'm just mm-hmm. saying in this moment, I'm going to come to the present. I'm going to be here. I'm going to enjoy the richness of it and savor the fact that I'm alive and capable of having these perceptions. And, and I think that that's much of what I'm trying to help other people identify, that it's always there. The right hemisphere is always turned on. It's kind of like that blue sky that's always there. The clouds of language can come in and distract you away from that blue sky, but the blue sky is always there if you're willing to go there and seek them. Now, did this did your stroke affect your perception of religion and or, or God? 
Um, I, I think that that before the stroke, I, I was more of a scientific thinker in that um, the, the, the subject of God didn't really work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the faith, the having the faith, the taking the leap of faith to something outside of me that I was to worship, that didn't work for me. Uh, my father was an Episcopalian minister. I was brought up in the structure. It just didn't work for me. But to me, post-stroke, what I, I realized is that the the different religions, whether it's, it's um, uh, Christianity or Buddhism or Muslim, whatever, it is a story that is the left hemisphere tells itself. And it has rituals and, and uh, whether it's a mantra or a prayer or whatever it is, a way of quieting that left hemisphere in order to be able to shift into an experience that I am in relationship with something that is greater than I am, which is that experience of spirituality. So on, I, I honor religions for for the tools that it is, and, and I honor the different stories. They're beautiful. Um, and yet I also see that as tools in order to quiet the left hemisphere language center so that I can shift away from the details into an awareness that I am a part of something that is greater than I am and and. And that it's beautiful there. And and from that space then, I can come back into my left hemisphere as a functional human being with, with the intention holding all of us as a human species. So I, it doesn't see the differences or the separation. It's not looking for, for those things. It's looking for the similarities, the commonalities. It's based on a feeling of love and compassion and openness and that everything is one. We are all one. Let's stop fighting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We have 90 seconds to go. Okay. So uh, we, we were going to have a phone call, but I think we'll, we'll pass on the phone call and we'll uh, just ask you. I know you have a list of things that yeah. you've been working on. Why don't you pick one and tell yeah. us something new that, that is going on? Uh, well, one of the things I'm, I'm working on is it's very important to me to help people who are in the condition I was in find their way back. Mm-hmm. And so I'm actually working with a local group uh, called Information in Place on the creation of, of um, using virtual reality, biofeedback, and gaming in order to provide tools for individuals to, to rehabilitate themselves. We have- yeah, one minute. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah. And then one other thing yeah. since we have one more minute. OK. Well, um, we don't want to leave any time on it. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm traveling a lot as a public speaker. Um, for me, uh, I have audiences of all different types from medical professionals to the general public to schools, the teenage brain. Uh, mm. I'm working on a project with Carrie Newcomer. That uh-huh. makes me very happy. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's just all good. I'm what just kind having of a great time. What kind of project are you and Carrie working on? Uh, there's a place, uh, Peace and Spirit or Spirit and Peace, the conference that happens in Indianapolis. And so we're, we're hoping to do a gig together in the fall. Great. All right. We apologize to Lyle for not getting him on the, on the air, but we are out of time. I want to thank Jill Bolte-Taylor, as always. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Bob. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Ariana Prothero, engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology, information at smithville.net.